The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture reading today is from Mark 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs and a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with the chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with the stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you what have you do to me do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, my, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs were feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits rushed out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed, rushed down the same bank, and the sea and drowned drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see the possessed man, the one who had the legend sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from the region as he was getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. Well done, well done. Well, I don't know if um, you have been victim of this lately, but there has been a lot of illness going around. Some of you may carry Purell on you on the regular. Um, and uh, every time you shake someone's hands, Purell yourself, it's one of those things like if, you're, if you have a child in school or someone in your office is, is homesick, you're going, oh man, when is it my turn? This is that kind of time of year. Well, I, w- I thought I'd do a little, uh, little happy research for you. Help, you, help you know where a lot of the germs are. So I looked at like top 10 germ places, and I thought I'd share that with you, so maybe you won't talk to anybody ever again. One of them uh, was buttons, as in elevator buttons, right? And I was looking at this article, particularly in ABC uh, uh, News. It was talking about 
and it was kind of funny the different quotes they said about it. And it was like, you know, try and use, listen to this, it says, knuckle it or wait for someone else to push it for you. <laughs> so we get to stand there, I guess, I guess you just could be like this for a long time, certain places. Uh, and it also says, hey, everybody needs to go to the first floor. So like, what do you do? Like, for, don't hit the first floor, take the stairs. Like, I'm not really quite sure what that is. Uh, a car trunk. There were several, by the way, that were connected to automobiles. So one is a car trunk. Now, I don't know what, you know, it was kind of like, yeah, you just kind of throw stuff in your trunk and bacteria just grows. So apparently, your car trunk is one of the top 10 places. Um, along with uh, gear shifts and dash- dashboards. So, you know, uh, you know, I don't know what that is going to mean for you, especially if you have a stick shift, but uh, dashboards and gear shifts have incredible amounts of bacteria and germs. Um, Here's one that everybody knows. Your phone. Your phone is possibly one of the germiest things you could carry around. It's basically like a germ box because you're, you're always talking on it. You're holding it. You're touching it. It's everywhere you go. We'll just leave that to the imagination. Um, and then there are other things like wallets, purses, carry items, things that like, particularly it says men's wallets because we put them in our pockets and they just are warm areas and they adhere growth. Just nat. I mean, do you want me to read more? Let's go. Um, here's one that I thought was funny. Laundry machines. Now you may, may know this, but laundry machines are terrible places for germs because Stuff from our clothes gets into it, and we don't realize it unless we really wash them properly and then really put them in the dryer for at least, it says like 45 minutes of high heat, because most of us don't do it. Not all the germs die. <laughs> it's not just stains we should be worried about. It's just germs in there. I, I love this. This is a quote by the ABC, uh, d- I guess, germ doctor. I don't know who this person is. It says, never kiss anyone who's just done your laundry. Okay, that's like a weird, okay, so, you know, spouses in the room, be careful of that one. But here's what, here's the, what the article said that I thought was really interesting. For those curious souls who want to go the extra mile in understanding just how massive the microorganism populations are in some places, these are the germy surfaces your cleaning supplies will happy to get to know. (laughs) We just read a passage that if you're new in church or maybe you've been in church for a while, maybe you're like, I'm an enlightened Christian. Uh, we talked about Satan a few, maybe a few months ago now. We're talking about a passage that's dealing with demons. But I want to encourage you, whether you're someone who has studied the Bible all your life or maybe you're coming back into the church or maybe this is one of those things that's like, well, we don't really talk about those passages today. The Bible doesn't skip over that. The Bible says, just like germs, there are a lot of things that we may not see, but they affect you in every way. We, we, could, we could name numerous things. Now, I know that some of you are like, is that the argument here? No, there's more to it. But that really is a, a huge piece of it. There's so many things that we don't see, we see the effects of, and yet we know they're true. We may even have definitions of things that we don't properly see. We just saw an incredible uh, storm blow through, and it just changed 10 degrees from this morning to now. We can describe it, we can talk about it, but did you see it? But you felt the effects. Look, the Bible is saying this is a very real struggle that's going on. 
There are very real things going on around us and in our lives. And we need to really take, take stock in that. If you're a person here that says, well, there's no, nothing really outside of me that affects me. The Bible's saying, look, we have an evil in us and we have an evil outside of us. And those things work in tandem. How wise are we about the fact that the Bible's saying, here, we're not trying to get, it's not trying to give you an antiquated understanding of, of spiritual order. It's actually trying to give you a realistic view of both the physical and spiritual wor- world working together. We, it talks about it in so many other ways. Why wouldn't it talk about it in this way? It talks about how even confession, even the psalm I read you in confession, how if we don't confess, we feel it in our bones. It's not just a confessional thing. Why is that? Because our internal world, our physical world, does match the fact that when you are struggling with something so deep and you don't tell anybody about it, it doesn't just affect you emotionally, it affects you physically. The Bible is realistic about these things. And I love what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils or demons. One is to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I would say we live in that. With the culture of what we see in both movies and discussion, Man, I did some major study culturally on this, and it's just insane the number of things that come up when you type in demons or when you do research on that. Cultural understanding of evil, just the presence of it and of an evil other in our culture. That we have an excessive view of it, and then we're on the other hand, we're like, eh, that's not, that doesn't really impact me. Isn't that what we need to see? There are two things in this passage I think are really simple. One is there's a reality of demons. There is a reality that there is an evil against us. But the the biggest part of this is that there's a ruler who's above it, Jesus. It's about King Jesus. You want a simple simple outline of this passage, it's about the ruler, the main ruler, uh, who is Jesus. The reality of demons that this passage takes is that, I would say it's so fascinating to me when I looked at the number of articles, whether it's not, just, it's not just movies and cultural things, it's also culturally understood about demonic forces. That It's overwhelming our interest, and yet on the other side, we speak of our culture as a very enlightened culture. One that, uh, those kind of things, that's an antiquated view. The, the Bible is, a, is an antiquated book, uh, but what we see here, this passage is talked about in all three Gospels, called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It means they all have the similar vision. John has its own vision. So when you look in the Gospels, if you're unfamiliar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all use this passage. In other words, it, they're trying to tell us this is a very important passage. This is something we need to understand that this unclean spirit about this man and who, he, who this unclean spirit meets in Jesus is very powerful for us to understand who we are in following Christ. The Bible is saying evil is very present and real and impactful. And it does a number on this man. And I don't know what your thoughts are on it. I mean, you know, I, I don't know where you go with that. But I wanted to answer a couple quick questions on demonic understanding from a Christian point of view. Because we may think, okay, what do we do with that? One is, one is that demons can't know your thoughts, okay? 
demons are limited in their power. When you look in the Bible and we talk about demon possession, we sometimes can draw our understanding of demons from more scary movies like The Exorcist, maybe the first thing that pops in your mind. But those kind of things are more cultural, you know, spinoffs. Demons in the scriptures, what we understand is they, they don't really, they don't know your thoughts. They don't, they have limited control and power. And even in this instance, this is a very rare instance in the Bible of demons attacking and, and absorbing into this person and influencing this man. The, the other part of it is that they don't know the future. They're not somebody that's, you know, some little things that you have a demon for every single thing. You know, you talk about you have an angel and a devil on a shoulder, right? That discussion. That's actually never a Christian thing. That came about many years ago through a, the blend of many religions to say, you have a demon on this shoulder and an angel on this shoulder, and hopefully you make the choice. That's not how demonic influence works. Demonic influence works by its influence in and against your sin. And even some days when you don't know how to describe why you feel under attack, why you feel such just horrible nature about yourself, those are attacks. There are spiritual influences many times that are not described in so easy ways, easy ways of, gosh, I've been in darkness and we need a vitamin D light, right? Demons can attack us and in our sin. But here's the thing. Demon possession in the Bible, oftentimes too, here's another question I think. Sometimes in the Bible we see people with sickness, and this is why people have thought the Bible so antiquated. See people with sickness and they just attributed every sickness to a demon. That actually is not true. Multiple passages in the Scripture do not attribute any illness to demonic influence. And I say influence, not possession. That's really important to understand because you can see the errors. You can see how many of us, and maybe many of us in this room, don't attribute everything to some little demon or evil in our life. But maybe we go to the other extreme. This is what Lewis was talking about. We need to understand that, yeah, the demons were involved with some illness, but why in this purpose? The question isn't, do they? The question is, why in this passage? Why did they attack? Why did they address? Why did they pursue people in this sense? One of the most prolific conversations I have with people is when they go abroad or they go to another country and they experience spiritual life in another country. And oftentimes when I talk to them and they come back to the States, we'll have this discussion of, hey, when I was over there in Africa or wherever it was, they went South America, um, <clears throat> they experience some sort of spiritual like awakening or movement. And they'd say, man, people were just talking about the spiritual world and this influence in this way. It's almost like it's, it's, it's and they often say, it's not even existent here in America. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Actually, it's just as much here. See, demonic influence works in ways and in conjunction with where it is. Just because we go to another place that may have a different cultural understanding or, or maybe they're Christians and they're seeing all these things going on spiritually and we think, man, why are they so in tune spiritually to all these things and we are not? It doesn't mean <clears throat> that demons and evil is not influenced here or there. It just means differently. 
It means they're attacking and addressing the specific things. Look, let's look at this man for a second, because this man tells us that. This man, it says he lived among the tombs, verse 3. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he had wrenched the chains apart. You can imagine just this, this man who they would think, okay, what do we do for this guy? They grew up with this guy. They had this guy. He was a part of their, their community. And then <clears throat> all of a sudden he's being destroyed by this influence they may understand or may not understand. And they begin to chain him. And it often, it says in verse 4, it often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Listen to this, the way that this man's life had become. This is demonic influence. I mean, demons do this, and this is how, let's look at our specific culture and what they do. Demons, as here, they bring, this man is cutting and tormented. Demonic evil influence comes by destruction. It's by taking human beings and dehumanizing them. It's that simple. They move into places and areas to destroy Communities, and oftentimes we don't see. Uh, I'm doing, I don't know if you've been reading in the news, but I've been reading a lot of it lately because it's headlining. There are these community, communities now in Florida, some of which are the wealthiest parts of Florida. And they're discovering that there are these massage and prostitution parlors in those areas. Areas that no one would ever see or think of. And people, particularly women in those that are being debased, dehumanized, and all under the nose of all the greatest wealth all around it. That is evil. That's not just there, that's here. There's destruction and dehumanization all around us, tormenting. Where is it? We, we, could, we could uncover a thousand things with that. Look, there, there are places here in our city and in our homes and in the ways we see demonic evil influence, not just this overwhelming, like somebody, you know, what we see, we think of like is in the exorcist or something like that. We're talking in the current, in the water, every day. That's how they work. It's not just out there or in another country. It's in here. It's all around us. How do we destroy? How does a, a demon want to destroy a church? By bringing destruction to one of its members. Maybe that kernel of gossip that you received about someone in here that continues to be fed by all these voices outside that say, oh yeah, that's true, yeah, that's true. And instead of just going to that person and talking to them about what the problem is or the criticism or the whatever's going on, you just continue to be, feed on that. That is not of the gospel. Those are voices of evil. That's why gossip is brought up as one of the worst things that can happen is because we love to do it. And it seems so, oh, that's not as big a deal. What about in our workplaces? One of the best things that we talk about, I talk about serving in our city, NIFW, which is the National Institute of Faith and Work, does this project called Gotham, uh, the Gotham Fellows, and if some of you have heard of it, it's like a nine-month-long deal. At the end of it, they have to do a project called the Gotham Project, which 
explicitly says, what are areas of destruction and evil and darkness in your current job that you could make a project to bring life to? I mean, it could be anything, right? Destruction happens not just with, with uh, you know, the, the, the deepest, darkest, you know, things we think happen in Florida. They happen right in our, under our nose. The way that our, our, our offices function. How do we bring light into a small place? How do we care for our homes and families when there is destruction coming in? What about the ways that we care more about What's going on in the influence of whether it's our children or our neighborhoods or those things than sometimes our own souls when the water rises? Where do we run? The other thing that it says over and over in here is that he lived around the tombs. He lived around death. In the Talmud, which is basically a Jewish civil ceremonial understanding, this was a definition It gave four signs of madness. Listen to this. Walking abroad at night, spending the night on a grave, tearing one's clothes, and destroying what one was given. Those were Jewish understandings of madness. This man clearly has all of those. And he spends the night in the tombs. He has death around him. Think about that. Think about the mark of that. What are the ways that when you experience those, those deep, dark things that attack you, torment you, that what does it feel like? It feels dark. It feels like death. That's what the demons are about. They're about death. And, and if one is in the tombs, they were seen as unclean. And what did it mean? It meant isolation. It meant he was wrenched, not just apart chains, but he was wrenched apart from community. I find it fascinating that this man, instead, I wonder how many times they said, what can we use this time to bind him and keep him from us? Don't you know this was the guy that you said, hey, you scared your children about? These are the stories of the boogeyman. This was the guy. Like, can you imagine, they, 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 the, they hit the shore and this person meets them, and Jesus is the only one unfazed. It doesn't say what everyone else in the boat with him thought of this guy. Were they just stepping back? Can you imagine what that was like? This is the guy in that community that everyone was afraid of. He was the example of evil. And because of that, instead of probably asking, what are the cha- how do we bind him? How do we keep him from us? What is strong enough to keep him? They they weren't asking, they were were not asking who is the one who's strong enough to face him. Isn't that what it is? Isn't that what evil does? It isolates you. You want to know what you and I do most? Here's the smallest kernel of demonic work in your life and mine. The moment you experience shame about something that you see about yourself, what do you most often do? Pull away. Why? Because we're saying no one is strong enough to love me in that place. No one could really take care of me there. When you experience those things where you think this is just, and you're tormented, notice what is torment? Some of you are tormented by the, the way you look in the mirror. 
Some of you are tormented by your bank account, what you see regularly. Some of you are tormented by what you don't have. Maybe it's a longing for children, a longing for a spouse, the longing for relief in some way because you're so depressed and no one knows it. And yet, what do we do with it? We isolate ourselves because no one could be strong enough to love me in that place. No one gets it. No one cares. That is evil. It makes me teary to say it to you because I I implore you, just as I know myself, it is so easy for me as your pastor to see something about me that I go, why is it there? And to not tell anybody about it. Because I think, oh, if anybody should have it together, I should have it together. You wonder why I weep at one defense? It's not because I'm the professional Christian in the room. It's because I need him just like you. And I'm weeping for you. Because some of you are in a cycle of shame and guilt, and you think the only way to deal with it is to assuage your shame and guilt yourself. It's false. Fascinating story. There's a story of a student who visited Calcutta to work with Mother Teresa treating lepers. And she approached Mother Teresa and said she wanted to work with her. She said, I want to go work with you in treating these lepers. And she thought she would please Mother Teresa, but instead replied, Mother Teresa replied, why do you want to do that? There's poverty in your country that's just as severe as the poorest of poor. And the student wasn't exactly sure what she was talking about. In James 2, chapter, 19, uh, chapter 2, verse 19, he talks about faith. James' big thing is, is good works. Like, if you want a practical book of, like, living out your faith, James is your book. So you, you wouldn't expect this line from James. Listen to what he says. He's talking about faith and how it works out in real life. He says in verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James is using the argument to say, yeah, we all have a very practical faith. If you don't, then you're not really believing in God. And guess what? Guess who really believes? The demons. Do you ever think about this? The demons believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe in the Trinity. They believe in the church. They believe that God is at work. They believe all these, like they're a part of it. He's acknowledging it. And yet what's the difference? They don't follow. They don't obey. They don't follow. Jesus puts himself here to show us he is the one of power. He's the one that we have power in. Here's the point. If the demons themselves, the ones who are 5,600 plus, maybe even in number, come and they all bow before Jesus, don't you think he's powerful enough to address the evil in you? What is the evil that torments you that you think is far too strong for Jesus? That's not a, a silly quip. That's a reality because if any of you in here are being really honest, there is something that torments you day and night. There's something that you don't think that you can be free from. That you think is far too strong and yet 
Jesus shows his power. He shows his power. That he is more powerful than the evil in you. He does that even by coming. And look, here's what's incredible. He sends these demons into a herd of pigs. And yet, where would he end up going to address evil? He doesn't just finish addressing evil by singing in pigs. He addresses evil by taking it on the cross. The cross was the picture of evil. And he submits himself to it. That thing that you think you cannot lose yourself by, he takes on himself. The thing you just think, I can never get back on track. I can never find myself getting past it. If you believe in Christ, if you follow him, there's a literal power for you in him to see it diminish. It may not ever go away. It might, and this is what demons do. They will always attack until Jesus returns. And this is what they say to him. They say, please don't cast us into the abyss, right? Please don't send us out. What are they They're not only acknowledging Jesus as the power, they know that one day they're going to be sent away for good. If that's the power that Jesus has in this passage thousands of years ago, don't you think his power to go to the cross, address evil, and rise again from the grave to say it's finished addresses your evil and mine? He is the one. He is the strong man. And he brings change in us. He can bring change. Like, do you notice there's a reaction here by the people? And when he sent it into the pigs, and the pigs like rushed down the side. The, for, verse 14, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and the country, and the people came to see what had happened. And they came to see Jesus and this de- demon-possessed man, this guy who they grew up with, who they thought was all you know, horrible, sitting in his right ma- mind, clothed in front of Jesus. Probably bearing all the scars from him cutting himself with rocks. Maybe hardly recognizable in some ways. Maybe from the chains that were wrenched apart, that had dug into his skin and his body. And yet there he is, sitting with Jesus in his right mind. And what do they care about the most? It says they were afraid, but in the Greek, what it actually says, they asked him to leave their country because he ruined their economy. The gospel is disruptive, friends. And it is disruptive in the most beautiful ways. One of the things that I mourn about the most is that my father is not a Christian. And one of the things that I've noticed in this passage and in others is that when I've had discussions with him about what it's like to be a Christian, oftentimes the reply back can be what it'll do to him or how it'll change him. Even using words and language of other people saying, God, I don't want to turn out like this. And in some ways, I applaud him for that. Other ways I don't, obviously. But how do we think that the gospel is not disruptive in people's lives? He's right. It would change. 
And two is, do we care enough for others to bring that change? Do we see this power and this gospel good news, something as good, good enough to change those around us that we don't think deserve it or will ever get it? And when we care too much about our status quo and what is easy and, and soft in our life, than to bring the powerful, disruptive, good news of Christ. It is that. Jesus brings this incredible message to them about what he does. And here's what's beautiful at the end of this passage. He does two things with this man. One is you see this man clothed, sitting before Jesus in his right mind. He becomes a disciple. Jesus has brought us and brought this man out of evil, out of an evil grip to follow him. Jesus has gone to this. He has taken on who everyone thought was far too strong. He is the strong man. This table is a picture of the strong man, Jesus. This is a picture that it is far beyond your evil. It's not your blood and body given. For every cut with the stones and wrenching of chains that this man would live with the scars seeing on his body, wouldn't you know his delight sitting in his right mind, enjoying what Jesus has given him in life? You get to taste it because he took on that evil for you. And you know what's beautiful about this? The man begs Jesus to, can I stay with you? Can I stay with you? And wouldn't you think Jesus would say, sure. No, he says no. Why? Why does Jesus say no? He says, go and speak. What is he doing? He's returning this man socially. He's no longer isolated. Do you know what this table means? It means that every time you, you know, are in the rows or sitting there and you come up in a semicircle, you're not taking this by yourself. You have other voices of good news of the gospel. Jesus brings you out of evil and he surrounds you with other voices that tell you the truth of who you are, that draw you out of shame and point you back to him. That's why it's called communion. We commune together with Jesus. Celebrate the fact that you rub shoulders with people. You may not even know, but by their presence, they are pointing you back and against an evil and against the sin in your own heart. Let's stand together.